I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. If someone were to ask how I got involved in motorcycle gangs in the first place, I guess the answer would be that it all started in the Texas prison, about six months before I got out in October of 62. Back in episode three, you heard these words from my father from Hate and Discontent. They were his very first on page one. Over the next nearly 500 pages, he goes on to detail his transition from Houston pimp to founding member of the Banditos, to devoted Cleveland Hells Angel, to murderer, to a man who'd run out of options. These are his final words on the very last page. To me, now I was in a circle outside of the circle that everyone else was in. I wanted to get the shit out of Cleveland and not look back, but there just seemed to be no way. I could never leave. Mary and the kids would become the first targets if I left town. I had no way of getting them out of there and money to be able to go anywhere and set up housekeeping for them. So I just figured that the best thing to do was to hang in there and become just as deadly as everyone else. Play the game and go with the flow. And from then on, I looked at everyone in a different light and saw more of them than I had ever saw before. Nothing was the same anymore and I didn't feel I could really trust anyone anymore. I now wore a smile as if it were painted on. I was like a time bomb ready to go off at any time. Church became something that started building up anxiety in me days beforehand. And when it came time to walk into the clubhouse, I was about a nervous wreck, watching each member for any sign of hostility and wondering if this was gonna be the night that I had to get down from my patch or my life. My father took writing classes in prison, then learned how to type, and then carefully crafted his words over decades to project the version of himself that he most wanted others to see. The meanest and proudest Hells Angel on two wheels. A man who pimped, raped, and killed, but also had a conscience. He said he was fed up with all the killing. But the most telling part of his whole manuscript, to me, is that he chose to end it before he rolled over to Cleveland ATF agent Bernie Butkovich. He doesn't explain why he was in a circle outside of the circle, as he put it. He never reveals exactly why he rolled, or that he even did it at all. Maybe he thought this would tarnish the veneer he'd worked so hard at polishing. Or maybe it was just too embarrassing for him to actually put it down on the page. I'll never know for sure. But I do know one thing. My father didn't fully appreciate what the consequences of his actions would be. If there was ever any common thread throughout his life, that was it. Here's a letter he wrote to Bernie Butkovich from prison in 1985. Bernie, you know, sitting here and thinking about this whole mess, Judge McGetrick and all, and all the smug looks I seen on their faces as I sat there in that witness chair, I now understand why other members didn't step away from the club, too. I really believe that things would have been much different if it hadn't been for the bribe he took. Speaking of different, you know, I'm an oddity in these witness units, among other witnesses, in the sense that each of their representing agents always seem to be working with them in order for an early release. 
which leaves me wondering, why have you never taken the initiative to help me? Since you know more about me and why I've done everything I've done, and at no time have I held back, and all the times I gave you 100%. Another reason I have this feeling of being an oddity among all these inmates is because unlike them, I turned myself in, and they all traded off and got away with things that are unbelievable. Not that I should not have received any time, because as you know, I expected to pay for this. In a way, I even welcomed it. It has done a lot to make me feel that I have paid for my crime. And this I'm thankful for because it released me from the burden I carried so many years. But then on the negative side, such a stiff sentence caused me to lose my family. As Mary put it, the children will be grown and it was best for them if she tried to make a clean start. I agree fully with her now because in view of everything, I had nothing to offer towards their upbringing in here. Plus all this, the look in the members' eyes when they heard that I'd gotten such a stiff sentence told me that they were thinking it was useless to even think of joining me in this quest to stop the killings. From the questions that Kaplan kept pressing me about how much money did I receive for my defection, leaves me believing that this is what they thought was the reason for my actions. That I'd demanded thousands of dollars for my information, and that was the way I was being paid back by officials. You and I know that isn't true, and was never the case from the start. Sometimes it's very hard to understand all that's happened to me, as I'm constantly reminded of it each day. You remember telling me that once this whole thing dies down, there was a possibility that I would get this time cut down. Mary and I lived on this hope for a long time. But as time wore on, and the possibility of it grew dimmer in Mary's eyes, I couldn't bring myself to repeat it to her anymore. So we lost hope. What I'm trying to get at is, as it stands now, there's still the chance that I can be a part of watching my children grow up. So see what you can do, huh? Regards, Butch. If my father ever had any intention of watching us grow up, I certainly never knew about it. He could have been a part of my life. He just didn't want to be. He was a ghost. Nothing more than a cautionary tale. And once he entered into his arrangement with Butkovich, they were both playing out their hands to benefit themselves as much as possible. The rest of us be damned. What good's a man who's lost his soul? Can't take a stand His flames gone Bernie Butkovich had been trying to develop an informant inside the Cleveland Hells Angels for quite some time. As Bob Cermak, retired CPD intelligence unit sergeant, said back in episode five. I think he was probably the primary reason that the Cleveland office of ATF had an interest in the Angels. It was, it was something that was personal with him. And according to Cermak, Butkovich couldn't believe his luck when my father took him up on his offer. So he came in and shut the door to the office, and he said, Would you believe it if I told you that we rolled an angel? But maybe Butkovich was overplaying his hand. If we go back to their phone call, there's a few key lines that when you put them together, they don't sound like they're coming from a star witness. Now, all I've seen is a clipping on it, okay? I never, you know, there's a lot of things I didn't stand there and watch. You know, I wasn't no eyewitness to a lot of things. I told you, I can't stand there and say, yeah, I've seen this and seen that. I can help you build a whole gang of cases on just fucking hearsay. I can't remember everything I'd heard about Bernie Bukovic, but from what I recall, what I heard about him wasn't necessarily that flattering. 
This is Roger Davidson, the former Akron prosecutor who tried the second murder case against Hell's Angel, Andrew Shoshone. Davidson and his co-prosecutor, Rick Dobbins, had to rely on the testimony of my father. Testimony they knew was such a problem that they didn't even call him to the stand. But Davidson says, more than Bernie Butkovich, it was his agency that was a problem. Back then, the ATF was... uh not very well respected by law enforcement and quite a few prosecutors. Basically, what we had heard about the ATF was that they couldn't be trusted. They would talk to detectives in the local police departments and try to get them to take cases on, cases that the federal government would not take because the cases were less than stellar. And they would try to convince you that the case was better than it was and possibly tell you facts that weren't there to try to get you excited about getting involved in their case. I do not believe that the ATF was as well-trained, as well-organized, and as well-led as the FBI. And the ATF was as far as I'm concerned, like a stepchild. These guys were out doing their own thing. And because of what the stuff they were involved in, drugs and alcohol, they're on their own a lot. They don't come in every day and report to somebody up above them, their chief agent or whatever. So they're just out there. And sometimes they lied to the detectives. They were known as just being... uh, A little bit like cowboys. Cowboys, who, as Roger Davidson had put it in episode seven, had that oh shit moment when my father was pressed to implicate himself in a felony, and he gave himself up for the killing of 17-year-old Donald Delacera. Now, both sides were in a tough spot. My father would have to do more time than he thought he would, because he had just confessed to first-degree murder. And Butkovich needed to work on securing both witness protection and a sentence my father would go for. As for the sentence piece, Bernie told him whatever it was, he could likely work off some time with his testimony. But they had to begin building cases, cases which would rely almost completely on hearsay from one man. From my perspective, the ATF is the outlaw entity of the federal government. This is Bill Mushi. You've heard from Bill throughout this podcast, speaking about his groundbreaking expose of the Witness Protection Program. They have a long history of deceitful practices. I've watched them for 40 years, and frankly, they should be disbanded because they are the outlaws of justice. They get involved with the prosecution ends of things, and I've seen numerous situations over the years where they have been untruthful at the least and infested with fraud at most. I had a case where a kid got convicted of first-degree murder based on an ATF agent's testimony that corroborated somebody who said he saw him at the scene. I didn't understand what was going on. The ATF didn't turn over any evidence on anything, payments, etc., so... I filed a Federal Freedom of Information Act request and found out that the ATF had paid the guy $15,000 after he testified. And the government never told the defense lawyers that, and a judge reversed the kid's murder conviction because of it. And that's the kind of stuff that they do over and over again. It's disgusting, and there are a lot of people who have called for the abolition of that agency. As for the witness protection piece, that was trickier. Back in episode seven, I mentioned that my father wouldn't plead guilty unless we were taken into WITSEC together. I said it was a crucial detail that I would come back to. Well, the entire deal to use my father as a witness rested on this one detail. He wanted to be put into WITSEC with his family. Remember, When my mom had taken us children down to Florida to start a new life, she wasn't running from the Hells Angels. She was running from my father. She was done with Butch Crouch. Now, Bernie Butkovich needed to convince my mom to go into the program as a family 
or else the entire deal was off. I'm going to do this right. The bigger I am, the more longer y'all are going to try to keep me alive. Until you get through with me anyway. But we're going to do it right all the way down the line, okay? It's not like we're going to keep you alive and then dump you. What about my old lady and kids? Chances are, if you want your lady and kids, they're going to go with you. A lot of promises were made to my father that if he testified and helped bring down the Hells Angels of Cleveland, that he would be rewarded for his behavior and that he would have this wonderful life and that he would get his wife back and he'd get his children back and he'd live in suburbia and, you know, he might have to do some time, but when he got out, he'd have a wonderful life to go back to. They brought my mother into the equation and essentially bribed her with that promise as well. However, she did not want to go back to my father. That was her worst nightmare. They couldn't hold this wonderful idea of a great life with Butch Crouch. They couldn't give that to my mother because it wasn't a great life with Butch Crouch. It was full of violence and drugs and alcohol and cheating and potential child abuse down the road and violence that she just escaped. When they realized they couldn't bribe her with that, the threat started happening. In Florida, my mother was receiving death threats at work. She was told that our lives were in grave danger, that my father had turned into a federally protected witness and had decided to turn state's evidence against the club. My mother was told that if we did not rejoin my father in witness protection, we would surely all be killed. And it wasn't just my mother that thought her life was in danger. Here's my younger sister, Jamie. Grandma told me that when we were down in Florida, she said the feds, so I don't know exactly who, but she said they used to call her and tell her, like, there might be bombs in her car and she should look underneath her car because people would be trying to kill her. And I remember thinking when she was telling me this, why would the government, you know, why would the feds, because, you know, they were, at that time, they were like our friends. They protected us after we found this out. You know, I'm like, why would they be telling my grandma that, that people were going to blow her up? I just remember her telling me that. Every time I turned the key in my car, she goes, I was, I'd always have to take a deep breath. She's like, I never knew if it was going to blow up. And I think they were trying to get my grandma to convince my mom to come into the program. That, you know, my dad was doing this stuff and that they were in danger. That they might try to kill them or something. My mom was told by federal agents that while we were in Florida, the angels paid my grandparents and my uncle Gene Zagar a visit. She was told that they were sending a message to us. Former Cleveland Angel, Matt Zaniskar, admits this was true. They did go see my family. But the message he says they brought was very different than the one we were given. That was uh, on a lot of people's minds. They say, hey, we got to let her know. We got to let Mary know and her brother and let their family know that, uh, hey, this is Butch by himself. It has nothing to do with the family. Wouldn't even dream of even hinting anything towards the family, any kind of violence, repercussion, or anything, if we were capable of doing that. Nothing. But that was given right away. My grandfather said that the president of the Hells Angels in 1981 went out to visit him and told him we would never hurt Mary and the children, ever. But we do want to know where Butch is. And that was it. We don't care where Mary and the children are. But if you have any information on Butch, we'd appreciate it. Shook his hand and left. And that was that. They were getting it not just from one specific spokesman or anything, but every say, hey, don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. It's a, it's a terrible thing, but don't worry about it. You don't have nothing to worry about. We had no idea where the Crouches were, nor did we ask anybody from any chapter from coast to coast to put out feelers to find out where they were holding Crouch and his family. That thought never even came up. 
what? You know, to go along with the program that he involved himself with, there is those protocols that the feds follow, you know? And one of them is being, hey, you got to instill some fear into the family of the informant. You have to do that. They pile up fear like you wouldn't believe. And frankly, I don't think fear is that much of a factor in a lot of these guys. I've repeatedly seen people go back to their, quote, dangerous areas. I don't think fear is as emphatic as what they paint it to be. But believe me, that is the word that is used every day to keep people in line. 90% of the time, there's no danger involved. And that danger is manufactured in a lot of respects to keep people in tow. Probably half the people in that witness program don't need to be in it. Maybe more. And if you look at our normal child welfare agencies, if somebody's put in danger or not being taken care of by families, they don't take them and send them to Billings, Montana. They put them with another family member who can handle it. If I had my choice, I would have gone to my grandparents. I would have stayed with them. Why were we kept away from the only safe, happy environment that we knew, which was in Ohio? I feel that they used my father, and I feel that they used my mother. And they put us in a place where it's just been four decades full of struggle. I don't think that my father actually felt like our lives were in danger. I think he knew all along that the club was never after us. I think that he also used it as leverage and a scare tactic to keep my mother around. This whole thing has infuriated me over the years. My mother was tricked into going back to an abusive, horrible man. She was forced into it with threats of us being killed. Our family was torn apart. And who's to, who's, who's to answer for that? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast they said it couldn't be done they say it bordered on impossible when someone says i can't do something i usually agree with them (laughs) and now against all odds this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable they got listeners we got listeners no way amazing now available on the odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm so happy we're at odyssey now oh my god they're amazing the commercial break podcast you heard it here last december 3rd 1981 side one tape one interview of clarence butch crouch Conducted by Lieutenant Jerry Ruby of the Brexville Police Department. Do you know anything about the death of Denise Padovic? Yeah. 
This was, was certainly the most interesting case I had in my legal career of 41 years. This is Ohio Senior Assistant Attorney General Jim Cochran. Back in the early 80s, Cochran was a young prosecutor in Cuyahoga County who got handed a grisly murder case. You know, the discovery of the crime happens in June of 1976, and it was about a year and a half after the crime actually was committed. Everything from that point on needed to be related to who actually committed the murder. And the only person that came forward to say that was Butch Crouch. And of course, he doesn't come in out of the cold until November of 1981. Make no mistake about it, Butch was an outlaw. He had an outlaw's lifestyle. He was doing it out of self-preservation. He, he thought the club was going to kill him for a variety of reasons. Now, whether or not he was paranoid about it or it was true, I don't know. But that's when he contacted uh, the ATF agent, Butkovich. From that point, he gives a bunch of different crimes up. And what he gives up in detail is this crime about Denise Padovic, the murder of Denise Padovic. Denise Padovic was the wife of Cleveland Hells Angel, Tommy Padovic. About a month later, they knock on Jerry Ruby's door in Brexville Police Department and say, Jerry, there's someone here that we want you to interview. And so they bring him to Butch and they do an interview of him. And then they eventually bring him back to the police station and they transcribe that interview. Okay, tell me what you know about her in detail. Just go ahead. Uh, I forget the date, which can be verified by, there was a concert downtown. We went downtown to a Chuck Berry concert. We came back to the clubhouse, me and Tommy and Denise, and Tommy was arguing with Denise out in the car, in the Cadillac. And they had been arguing for like about an hour or so, and he got out of the car, slapped her around a little bit, throwed her back in the car. She was in the back seat, and he got in the front seat and started up the motor and started winding it up real loud gun in the engine and everything and then he shut the engine off and he was screaming and hollering at her and I was standing up on the porch just kind of higher than the street on the steps and I seen a gun flash and he turned around and shot her over the back seat like that shot her in the head the forehead and uh and then he turned the gun around when we were running to the car he turned the gun around and he pointed up in the air like that and, and shot like he was going to kill himself but then he shot it in the air and, and we got him out of the car, looked at Denise and she had a hole in her, bleeding all up here. And uh, got Tommy, went up and took him in the house. Someone said, take the car, drive it around the block. Take the car and hide it around the apartments on Aspenwall. So I took the car and drove it around on Aspenwall and, and drove it between the apartments and went back to the clubhouse and hid. Ennis came down and me and Ennis took the body and we went out to where Ennis, to where they had them barrels stashed and there was dynamite and stuff like that inside a big package that was inside the barrel. And it was the same barrel that I pulled out of the garbage dumpster that was blocking the street in front of the clubhouse about maybe two, uh, three months before that. Because I've been bitching about the barrel being gone because I thought somebody took it home for a garbage barrel. And I pulled it out for the clubhouse and it had some kind of residue at the bottom of it because I turned it upside down to drain, but it never did all completely get out of there. And uh, anyway, we took the body out there, took it down there, dug up the barrel, put it in this barrel and cut her throat and dumped her in the barrel. It was determined that the crime was committed on October 25th, 1974. The way it was determined that way is because there was a Chuck Berry concert that was in town that night. And when Butch was debriefed in 1981, he links that event to that particular night. What they did after that is they had to figure out how to keep the heat off of the clubhouse because this wasn't TCB, which was a term that meant taking care of business. This had nothing to do with the motorcycle operations, had nothing to do with their criminal operations. It was strictly Thomas Padovic losing his cool and killing his wife in front of a bunch of witnesses. 
So they decided that they didn't want to bring it down on Tom. They didn't want to bring it down on the clubhouse at the time. And that's when they developed this idea that they would hide her body, cut up the car, and then move forward like she just disappeared. The dates are fairly important here. On November 3rd, 1974, Thomas Padovic reports to the Cleveland Police Department that his wife has been missing for several days. He said that on October 25th, She disappeared in the night sometime around 3 o'clock and took his automobile. And she hasn't been heard from since. And it was just listed as a missing person at that time. Do you know what kind of gun he used? Uh, It was a 38. A 38? Yeah, small 38. Whose gun was it? It was Tommy's. Tommy's gun? Yes. Do you remember you were at a concert? a Chuck Berry concert with Denise, and you probably spent some time with her. Can you sort of think back and see if you can recall what type of clothing she was wearing that night? Would that be possible? Okay, uh, Levi's. She had on Levi's, I'm pretty sure. Can you recall anything else she might have been wearing? I can't remember what the shirt looked like. She always wore them high spike boots. Who was present when the shooting took place, other than yourself? There's about four or five people, but I can't remember who all of them were. All right. Who took her out of the car? Me and George. You and George Rothrock? Yeah. Okay. When you took the body out of the car, what did you do with it? We took it down over the fence, over where the barrel was in the woods. George Rothrock, Enos Cernick, and yourself took the body out there. Where was Tommy all that time? Uh, He was in the clubhouse. Was he upset? Yeah, he was screaming and hollering and everything, and, uh... Did you find out later on why he killed her, or what the reason was? No, it was, uh... It was, they was just arguing and hollering, and he shot her. That was all. It was just him and her in the car. Okay. Why'd you choose the location of Brexville to dispose of the body? That's where George and them were stashing all the dynamite, and guns, and weapons, and stuff in that barrel. That's what they had it up there for. And when I started hollering about the barrel and everything, they said they had some TCB, and I said, oh, all right, and I shut up about it because I brought it up at a meeting, and they said it was for TCB, and I said, okay. And I never seen it again until that night. When you guys went to the barrel to put her body inside it, was there anything inside it that you had to take out? Yeah. What was inside? Big package full of plastic explosives and stuff. When she was put in the barrel, were you present? I mean, did you walk down there? Yeah. Did you put her in the barrel? No, George did. Okay. Do you remember how she was placed in the barrel? George cut her throat and pushed her in. That's all I know. Okay. You don't know if she was feet first or head first or anything about that? Head first. Head first? Yeah, he had her like this and dug up the barrel like that. And I went back for something. Now, what was I looking for? Oh, for her belt. Her belt was gone. Mm Mm-hmm. I found her belt hanging on the fence. I brought it back. George cut her throat and pushed her in the barrel. Why did George cut her throat? To make sure she was dead. Do you know if she was dead at the time? She wasn't in the car. She was breathing real hard at the clubhouse. And when did you know this? Uh, In the driveway. I pulled around and parked over there. Because I went back in the house and I said, she's still breathing. I said, you know, maybe we could get her over to Euclid Hospital. And they said no, because Euclid would just get a whole bunch of shit started. She'd die probably and they'd say Tommy did it. So I don't know. How about on the way out there? They said she was dead. Ennis said she was dead. This was a cold case before... They even had the name cold case for these old types of cases. Okay, Denise's body was buried in a barrel that was in the ground alongside Interstate 77, and it happened to be in Brecksville, Ohio. And that's why there was a connection to Jerry Ruby, who was the chief investigator in Brecksville. Jerry didn't know about this activity until about two years later when the body was discovered. There was a couple of boys They were running around in the woods at the time. One of the boys tripped over the barrel lip, lifted over a cover from it, 
They opened up the barrel, and of course, they saw this decomposed body. And that's how the case was originally reported. The body was transported to the coroner's office, where it was identified pretty quickly through dental records. But of course, before they had to have dental records, they needed to have some ideas to who might be involved in this. There was a ring on her finger that Thomas Padovic gave to his wife. And it said, with love to Denny, Tommy, and there was a date on it. And of course, that also led to the identification of the body. And then shortly after that, they called Thomas Padovic in and he identified the ring as being his wife's. Really, there's nothing to indicate that he had done anything wrong. Remember, his original story was, she disappeared in the middle of the night, she took my car, I haven't seen her since. Were you, uh, did you hear anything? Any conversations that you might have been with any people or anything about, um, about any type of alibi or story that was being put out about what happened to her? Because, you know, a lot of people were looking for her, Cleveland cops and everybody else, you know. Yeah, Tommy had put the story out that she had run off with the car and everything, and then, uh, and then later on he spread the story out when, when they found the body and everything. He was spreading the story that it was the outlaws that did it. You know, he said that, like he went and made a report that his wife was missing, she stole the car and this and that, and that she was going to Akron and calling down there and this and that. You know, he, he's trying to cover himself. That's about it. Then, December 26th of 1974, Jeff Wagner, who was Denise's father, contacted the Cleveland Police Department and said, look, something's happened to my daughter. She always contacts us around the holidays. She hasn't done that so far. I really think that somebody has done her in. And so now we had Jeff Wagner adding to that. And from that point, it was a missing persons case. And I got to say that what they did on a missing persons case was not a lot of investigation. And so it just sat there until these kids tripped over the body in June of 1976. Sherry was dedicated to that family in trying to get some resolution, some justice for these folks, because they were telling him that, hey, it had to happen by Tommy. At the time, in 1976, with nothing substantive to help solve the case, Jerry Ruby focused on an unlikely piece of evidence. This barrel, do you know, can you recall the color of the barrel? No, it seemed like it was green. That's all. It seemed like it was greenish looking. I know it had one of them round tops on it with a clamp over it. Okay. Do you know where the plant is on London? On London Road, the 3M plant? No. How did this barrel, how did you guys get this barrel? Where did it come from? You got to remember, this is 81 when Crouch comes in out of the cold, but Ruby's got this dead body in 76. Nobody had attempted to trace barrels, you know, in criminology before, but you basically have Denise's body buried in the barrel. It's her coffin, you know, if I can use the expression, and he needed to find out where that came from. So he's got to try to figure out some way to connect anything to this particular crime. And that's when he picked up the markings from the barrel. There's actually markings on the barrel, which brought it right back to that 3M plant, which was located very close to Aspenwall Drive, which is where the Hells Angels Clubhouse was at. And of course, he added that up with the fact that Denise Padovic lived in that area. It was a garbage truck that came by in front of the clubhouse one day, and it was dropped off. And it's one of them roll-off boxes, great big boxes, it's about this big around, this wide. It was sitting there and it had these oil drums, these big 55-gallon drums up on, up on top of it. I went out there and got a couple of them and pulled them down and took them over behind the car lot to use as garbage cans. And they came up missing and that's when I started screaming and hollering and nobody ever said anything. And I kept hollering about it and we got that fucking drum and they said we got it for TCB and never mind it. And I said, okay. Okay. Do you remember the inside color of the barrel? Uh, brownish. Brownish? Yeah, brownish, I think. Okay. The question about the barrel, was it significant or insignificant? To me as a prosecutor, it was significant because it was one piece of evidence, one piece of hard evidence 
that the crime was committed in an area and that it also supported Butch Crouch's testimony about how the crime occurred and how the body was hidden. So I thought it was very important. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Shortly after Detective Ruby's interview with my father, Tommy Padovic was indicted for murder. The trial was set to begin in early 1983, when the Akron Beacon Journal ran the story on March 20th. Federal investigators have charged that Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Bert W. Griffin has endangered a key government witness against the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. The alleged breach in security occurred Monday when Griffin let about 15 members of the motorcycle gang leave his courtroom by a back exit that normally is not open to the public. That gave the Angels a chance to see how bodyguards will escort star witness Clarence Butch Crouch to and from Griffin's court, where he is to testify against Tommy Padovic, a gang member on trial for aggravated murder. Investigators said the gang would like to kill Crouch. That gave the Angels a chance to scope out our security, a detective said, It's unbelievable that a judge would allow them to do that. Investigators said the case against Padovic is the strongest one developed since Crouch voluntarily became a government witness. The trial was delayed for more than three full years. And two weeks before it was set to resume, Jim Cochran paid my father a visit. I went on a plane trip with Jerry Ruby up until Milan, Michigan, where he was being held as a federally protected witness. And I met him for the first time, uh, and we talked for hours about the case. And he was kind of all over the place. He was talking about his manuscript at the time. Butch told me in that interview that his lifelong ambition was to own a horror house in New Orleans. <laughs> and, and uh, of course, he wasn't going to do that as a federally protected witness, So I guess he had to resort to writing something. And he was complaining about the food in the jail and, you know, all those other things. But on the facts of this case, he was crystal clear. And again, I'm looking at this guy in 1986 and the crime occurred in 1974. And he still remembers these facts. Everything that Butch was telling me, I believed. And it was also corroborated by other evidence. My father also told Cochran something I never had the answer to until now. When we were in the prison up in Milan, I did ask, how how did you get in touch with ATF? And he said, Butkovich came into the clubhouse and started handing out cards. And everybody was like laughing at him and things like that. And, you know, because they all knew that if they testified, you know, they were as good as dead. And... He kept that card. And a year or so later, when he's down in Shreveport, Louisiana with his mom, and he's kind of like on the outs with the club, he decides that they're probably going to kill me if I ever go back to Cleveland. So I'm going to contact Butkovich. And he also owed the clubhouse money. He owed them several thousand dollars, and he thought that that was as good as reason as any for them to kill him. It's because he owed them some money. And so that's why he just, he got paranoid. The narrative that Butch had always put out was that he was fed up with the killing. It's what he said on the witness stand over and over. And it's how he portrayed himself in so many of his letters. For a while, I made myself believe this. As much as I hated him for who he was and what he'd done and how many lives he'd ruined, I needed to believe that there was some decency in him, some moral conscience. But Cochran's explanation for why he flipped seems more likely. 
Maybe it was as simple as owing the club money. Maybe that's what he meant by being in the circle outside of the circle. Clearly, it was hard for my father to sell himself as a man of character. Angel's defense attorney, Alan Kaplan, took advantage of this in the earlier trials. The Hells Angels had hired an attorney, a very good attorney, that went around nationally and defended them. So he had a regular script on how to cross-examine Butch Crouch as an informant for the ATF. But this case was different. It wasn't based on hearsay. Butch didn't hear about this crime. He helped to cover it up. And there was also the testimony of Denise's family and the hard evidence, too. Cochran says that Kaplan didn't even put up any witnesses in the Tommy Padovic trial. While we were waiting for the jury to return, Alan Kaplan came over to the trial table and he said, while we were gone for lunch, we went for Chinese food. And this was the fortune that was in Tommy's fortune cookie. And he handed it over to me. So I unwrapped it and I read it and it says, you will soon be wearing new clothes. And so, of course, you know, when uh, after the verdict came in, Tom was immediately remanded to jail. So I guess he got his new clothes. Tommy Padovic was sentenced to life in prison for killing Denise. It was the fifth murder trial my father testified in, and the only one which resulted in a conviction. A few years later, on Saturday, April 21st, 1990, while working alone in a sewage treatment station at the Marion Correctional Institution, Padovic climbed a stepladder, wrapped an electrical cord around his neck, and stepped off. Over the years, I've thought a lot about my father's motivations and the price he made us pay, and whether any of it was worth it. It's an impossible question for me to answer. Was destroying my family worth giving closure to someone else's? Without Butch Crouch testifying in this case, the Wagners have no closure on this homicide. They suspected from the beginning that it was related to the Hells Angels, and specifically to Tommy Padovic. But they had no way of proving it, and neither did Jerry Ruby, who was the chief investigator in the case. So in my mind, without Crouch testifying, these people have no closure on the loss of their daughter and the loss of their sister. And I realized what a burden it would have been for anyone to be in witness protection, especially somebody who had an estranged father that they didn't know very well. The only thing I would like Jackie to know is that without her father being in witness protection, without her father testifying in this particular case, that Denise Wagner Padovic's murder would not have been brought to justice. As far as Butch is concerned, I had no idea where he went after he walked out of that courtroom from testifying. So I just assumed that after he's released from prison that he went into the witness protection program, took on a new identity and uh, lived out his life. There's one other piece of information here to address. Other than my father who's gone and my mother who won't speak about it, there's only one other person I would have liked to ask about my father's true motivation in rolling over or if we were ever really in any danger. Bernie Butkovich. But I can't ask him either. Butkovich was an amateur pilot. And in 1987, he climbed aboard his homemade two-seater biplane along with a passenger. Here's retired CPD intelligence unit sergeant Bob Cermak. He was taking a friend up for a ride one day and part of the gears for the flaps failed. And the plane went into a spin and he couldn't control it and it crashed and they were both killed. I personally believe that the Hells Angels got onto that airfield in the cover of darkness 
and manipulated some of the bolts. I personally think that they killed him. And I think they did because of his relationship with Butch and the fact that they were doing everything they could to try to put some of the angels in prison. Can't prove it. Never will be able to, but I truly believe that. Not based on any evidence, that's my personal opinion. What good's a man who's lost his soul? On the final episode of Relative Unknown. Well, I asked Jack, I said, I know where your daddy's at. You want to meet him? So my aunt, my uncle, and I drove across the border to go see my father. She kept telling me, it's okay, baby, I'm here. I'm here for you the whole time. Don't worry, don't worry. I have to confront my father's past in more ways than one. My phone rings, and I look down at my phone, and it's somebody from Ohio. And I said, hello? He said, hey, Jackie, this is Andy Shoshone. And Andy is the man that my father testified against twice. But now I'm talking to him on the phone, this man that I've been hiding from my entire life. For episode transcripts and story extras, visit relativeunknown.com. Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown. I feel a change on the rise. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.